Head to congos.com slash podcast for links, pictures, and info about today's episode. Also, subscribe. And if you enjoy The Front Lounge, tell your friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Front Lounge with Congos, who are I. Uh, we're here with Sam Pauly. She was originally tour assistant when you when you met us, right, on the Kings of Leon tour? She um, is a touring professional. You can talk now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah you I can w- talk whenever you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys have been telling me not to talk all morning. Um, <laughs> well, save it for the podcast, yeah, but now the podcast has started. Yeah, because yeah, you I, literally walk into the room and you've got great stories off the bat and we're like, save it, save I it know, for the podcast, don't talk to us, we'll just sit here in silence until we start recording. <laughs> I so know. I guess I should finish my intro. Uh, originally tour assistant, now tour accountant, quite the jump. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's It's been a couple years. So yeah, touring professionally, been on tour with acts like Hosier, Kings of Leon, who else have you worked with? I did a country duo called Maddie and Tay for a little bit, that was fun and different. But mostly just, I've done two tours with Kings of Leon now, so they take up most of my time. Mm. Okay. Well, let's just ask you right off the bat, how did you get started in this world? Because I remember we talked, we interviewed you for our docu-series that we're doing, and you tell us a story. Uh, do you want to just tell us again how you got started? Because it's quite interesting. Yeah, repetition is the mother of learning. I'll tell you as many times as you need. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um, was an intern for a management company because I went to school in Nashville and I was studying music business. And I just kind of hit it off with the Kings of Leon's team. And I got a phone call one day saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a tour manager. And he said, great, we're going on tour in January. Do you want to come? And I said, I'm there. So That's not a bad first gig. <laughs> I, you were how old? At I that point? was at the time I was twenty one, and it was not a bad first gig. It was definitely a massive learning curve. I had never even been backstage at a show before, so I had a lot to learn very quickly. Mm-hmm. What was it that uh, they saw in you? Do you think that you you know you were so young at the time you'd never been on the road where they're like, oh, let's call her and bring her out. I think I was just a mad hustler, you know, I was kind of always around and I was always nailing the small things. And, you know, when people ask me, like, why did they pick you? I always say, because, like, I'm the best at returning your wife's shoes to Nordstrom, picking up your birthday cake, dropping off your dry cleaning. And, you know, when people trust you with the small things, then they trust you with the big things like their money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're doing wrong. (laughs) Mo never gets my dry cleaning right. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, I, no, I, I, I think I think what you say is true. Uh, detail uh, is indicative of you know the rest, especially in this business. I mean, we we know how much detail there is on our level of touring, which is usually at most two buses and one truck. And Kings of Leon will be up to what probably nine buses, eight trucks, maybe. Yeah, depending on the show we're doing. I mean, I think our smallest. Um, kind of version of it that I've been around for has been four buses with the band not on buses so that's just four buses of crew but when the band you know when we're doing the most massive it can be eight buses nine trucks you know quite quite large so how what was your kind of job description when you first started and how did it evolve and then you know how did it evolve into what you're doing now Yeah, so when I first started, I was mostly in charge of signs 
and handling the runners lists and just looking after the crew and making sure they had all the info they needed to do their gigs. So what do you mean by signs and runners lists? I mean, we know what that means. Yeah. So when you arrive to a venue at six in the morning, it is like a blank canvas. And my job is to make sure that it looks like home every day when the band and crew arrive. So you have to kind of assign rooms, put up signs so people know, you know, where catering is, where production is, which way to get to the stage. And you really have to start from scratch every single day. And because every scenario is different. So you just kind of have to give people knowledge. Yeah, I mean, the venues probably share some similarities. But I, I having done a bunch of arenas and sheds as a support act, we found those signs very helpful, you know, because you a lot of times you roll off or out of your bunk into the parking lot and walk into the venue and it's like a giant institutional building you know you don't know where anything is so the, so the arrows on the floor and the signs saying where you got to go are actually very helpful that scene in spinal tap you know where they're looking for the stage was based on reality <laughs> sometimes it is really fucking hard to find the stage and you buy colored gaff by the palette oh yes i am actually towards the end of the last tour got kind of hostile because people kept running away with my pink gaff tape (laughs) and I was having to like barter with the audio guys like I am so serious everyone stop stealing this I will trade you whatever other color but like you can't take the pink because it was kind of just my thing and people knew if there was ever a note written on pink gaff or arrows with pink gaff like I had been there and that was information that I specifically wanted them to have so, so how many how many touring crew say on a on a big bus tour with you guys? I just wrapped up Kings of Leon, and band party aside, our crew party was anywhere from thirty five people to like fifty people. Yeah, okay, so that's fifty people that have to move from point A to B every single day. They have to be fed. They have to have the occasional shower, occasional hotel rooms, and um, what well, I mean. What let's ask this when you first went on tour, like say first day, first week, what was it about this life that you had no idea was it this way, you know, or is there something that stood out and said, Holy shit, I, I did not picture it like this? Oh my gosh, all of it. I mean, I remember my first day so vividly. Um, it's kind of like a PTSD situation. Um, there are random triggers, and I'll just flash back to it. Um, I remember showing up and looking nothing like everyone else who was there. I have zero tattoos. I am blonde. I'm like a cheery little Southerner. And I remember walking up to these like heavily tattooed, tired, old, like (laughs) men who were over it and being like, hey guys, are you on the tour? And I'll never forget the LD at the time looked at me and goes, yeah, are you? And I said, I am now. (laughs) And I just remember being so shocked at A, how many people it took, and also B, all the little things you had to think about. You know, because when you're living a normal life and you're not on tour, you go home and whatever food's in your fridge, you eat it. Well, someone like me has to think about dietary restrictions for 50 people. You know, okay, we're programming overnight, so not only do I have to figure out breakfast, lunch, dinner, I also need to figure out overnight food and who's driving these people. Every single thing is you know, a process. You have to be so on top of everything to get the most simple things accomplished. Right, because at those venues, the arenas and sheds are usually 
20 miles, 30 miles out of town. So you're showing up at this place and a runner is somebody who basically goes and gets stuff for you in a van or whatever. They move people around. They go get groceries or whatever. So all that stuff has to be kind of advanced and taken care of ahead of time so that you show up and you can get what you need on the spot. I mean, how far ad- advance, I mean, how far in advance do you prepare that stuff, say, uh, you know, the details of a bus tour? I will always start it when I'm in a production role. I will always start talking to promoters two or three weeks out saying, you know, hey, what menus do you have? You know, these are how many runners I'm going to need. This is the hotel. You know, can I get restaurant options? Can I get, you know, what are your nearest stores? And just kind of really be familiar with the area because the more knowledge you have, the more efficient you can run your day. And that really, you, I always try to plan everything that I know I need to accomplish, get it done as soon as possible because you never know what kind of chaos is going to erupt out of nowhere. And then I know, uh, our tour manager, Mick, has talked about this a lot because he's also like that super ahead of it, always wants to advance as far in advance as possible. And then you always run into a promoter that it's chaos up until like the day before and you email them 50 times, don't get an answer. And that one little thing can hang up a whole week's worth of work because you're having to chase someone around just to get simple things figured out. Like, where do we park the buses, you know, on oh Tuesday or whatever? I, you know... I think the line I always end up having to use is, you know, promoters will say, you know, we know this venue, we do a hundred shows here. And I'm like, okay, I totally get that. You may do a hundred shows here this year, but you're only going to do one Kings of Leon show. So we need to talk about doing it my way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, you know, that's the kind of, I guess, confidence you know, in the in the crews that I've seen, the people who are in the managerial positions, and I mean, you know, not not management back in the office, I mean tour managerial positions, they have a certain confidence, and sometimes they can be real dicks. You know, we've been with bands where the tour managers are just a not a nice person. Um, but talk about a little bit of how you balance that. Basically, aggression. You need a certain amount of aggression. You're dealing with mostly men and mostly people who have been doing this a long time, and they are territorial in every venue that you go to. So, how do you balance? You had a good example before about accounting. About you, you now your job is to challenge costs, right? Often, yeah. yeah. So, in my current role of tour accountant. It is 90% trying to convince the other person that you're not paying for it. You know, it's 90% saying, I know that 50 people just ate pizza, but that's really not my responsibility to pay for. When it totally is in some cases, but you have to just make them believe your side of the story to the point where you don't have to pay anything. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but I think... You know, I've been very fortunate that I can only recall one or two situations where I've had to kind of be no more Miss Nice Girl. You know, I think that you can definitely, if you respect the work that people do and you respect their time and their workload and you approach everything as kind of like, okay, we're on a team here. We both want to put on like an awesome show then people will be willing to help you and work with you. And, you know, I always try to go in and I'm very lucky. My mom is Southern, but my dad is from South Boston. So I can kind of hit them with like, I can be so kind and gentle, but if you piss me off, like you better be ready for it. Have you, you know? seen Goodwill hunting? <laughs> <laughs> I can ask you about apples. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think we'll probably get into a lot of this detail over the course of the podcast because it's, you know, we interact with a lot of touring professionals just by nature of our job. Um, but, you know, it's, it's rare, I think, in your average everyday life that you meet somebody who does this work. It's a, it's a relatively select few people that either get to make money as a musician on the road or people who, you know, who are in a crew capacity who live this life, you know, and they all tend to know each other. They kind of tend to stick together and there. A lot of them are based in Nashville where you live. So everybody in that world sort of knows this world, but it's, I find it interesting even, even before we started to do it. And I think uh, the audience will as well. This is a weird fucking life (laughs) it is very weird and i had no idea that it even existed before i just kind of fell into it yeah just what you went from zero to very fast very quickly yeah and the uh so yeah all those jobs that you were doing on the kings of leon tour eventually led to the tour managing job of hosier right because when we saw you in phoenix you were tour managing them for a run Right. So I was assistant tour manager for Hosier. There was one guy who was really in charge of Andrew. So we had Hosier and then he had a band and crew. Mm. And it got so insane for him when Take Me to Church happened that we kind of ended up splitting it. You know, I would look after the band members and the crew while Jake, who was my fantastic tour manager, looked after Andrew. And it was kind of like an all hands on deck because that happened so fast. And yeah, that song blew up. I, my first week with him was the Grammys and I will never forget the pressure cooker that that was being new in a camp. You have to learn whole new personalities, especially when there's a cultural difference. You know, I was American. The majority of them were Irish and that's just, you know, the way they show love is different. The way they express their needs is different. Um, and I really love that culture and I'm so happy that I had that experience, but it was definitely kind of like whiplash, you know, um, you I, learned to drink on that tour. Apparently. I learned to drink so much, especially dark beer. Um, that you know, I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> so, um, one of my best friends is Irish, and he is always telling me, you know, like remember, not everyone's Irish anymore. Take it easy on them. <laughs> also, I'm like, uh, is in take care of Andrew. It's not like he's some kind of needs like babying and stuff no, like that. He, he's doing radio gigs, flying yeah. away, doing all sorts of stuff in between the, the usual shows. So it's oh, not man. like, yeah. He was on everything. I think, you know, we did every television show. He did a lot for magazines. He was just really the vision of being an artist who is present when their song is happening. You know, I think he did an amazing job at accommodating everyone and just, you know, really giving the people what they wanted. Let's do a quick breaking news <coughs> segment. <laughs> Jesse Congos, our brother, last night at like 12.30, sent us all a text on our group of this cover of Come With Me Now on Instagram. We're not going to tag it, it, but it gave me nightmares. <laughs> well, I sent it to the, to the band group chat because sometimes you just come across something. And it's it's as flattering as it is when people cover a song, in, you know, like in a sort of social media way when you wrote that song in the case of Johnny you know and you had this vision of how cool it was going to be and it's going to be yeah it's a hit song and we're a cool rock band and then and then you see a version of it that does not in any way connect with your intention uh we I find that fun especially if it's not my song so 
I sent, I said, night, night, sleep tight and sent him this <laughs> link. <laughs> well, I think I, it's I, actually, I don't watch him. I can't watch him. I didn't. I watched it this morning. I was joking. It didn't actually give me nightmares because I refused to click on the link until this morning. <laughs> I find it quite inspiring because I think we could outdo the ruining of that song more than anyone else. And I think we should give that attempt and, you know, kill the song forever. <laughs> we do it in rehearsals. You know, if you're rehearsing for a gig and say it's a fly gig and we haven't been on the road for a few months, you got to go and get your chops back up. And so we got to play all the songs, even though we've played them a thousand times. So we find different ways to play these songs in rehearsal. And I think the most recent one, we did a, a like a big band jazz Richard Cheese version of Come With Me Now, you know, that had a swing swing beat and uh, the crew... We, to like a major key. It's mm. it's like a challenge to see who can make the crew either laugh or cringe the most, you know, with the song. I just have to quickly interrupt. Um, Mo Gordon is at Fry's Electronics and he's asking if we need anything, so... <laughs> Do you need anything, Sam? Um, no, but that place gives me massive flashbacks to Grammy week with Hosier. We were doing Ellen and we needed an adapter plug and I was brand new and had really no idea how to even handle the situation. I think there was like one hour of time. And I just remember jumping in the car service and being like, we have to go to the nearest electronic store. (laughs) And then just being so overwhelmed and making it like just in the nick of time. And then just being so hopped up on adrenaline, but also very scared that I bought the wrong thing. Did you go to that Fry's (laughs) Electronics in Burbank? Yes, I did. That's a weird store huh it is a very it's like a time warp you walk in i mean first of all it's Mm. a store that sells computers which is kind of a funny concept now to think of Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna go to a store and buy a computer just order it online it's be like ordering a book about the internet but then it's all like space age like 50s space age themes so there's like alien ships and like flying sources around the thing and it's the size of like a gigantic walmart with just electric components what do you remember what kind of adapter you needed I want to say it was, um, you know, like the the power plugs that you put into like um, the little round ones. I'm really great at technical things, as (laughs) you can tell. Yeah, I know what you're talking Um, about. They're often on chargers. Yeah, yeah. and then like an old cell phone charger. And you can never just buy one. So they give you the pack of like a hundred (laughs) ends. And then you're sitting there backstage at Ellen trying to find the one you need. And it never fits tight enough. And it's just not good. (laughs) So what are you doing in L.A.? Now, because you live in Nashville and you texted us and said, hey, I'm in L.A. Yeah, I actually tweeted you and said, if I'm in L.A. and I'm not on this podcast, (laughs) our friendship is over. Um, No, I am in L.A. mostly seeing friends. Uh, You know, one thing when you're on the road all the time, you don't necessarily get to be there when your friends need you. And um, I have a good friend who's going through a divorce currently. And she called me and was just like, hey, I know your tour is over. And I was like. Well, then I'll come on out to L.A. and, you know, when you You're go to... You're managing her divorce? I'm tour managing life, <laughs> you know. Um, I actually, a friend of mine this morning told me, your itinerary gives me so much anxiety because I was like, hey, I'm free from like 4 to 7.30 today. And he was like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing from 4 to 7.30 today. Um, I actually sent Danny my itinerary, which is now two versions old. But, um... <laughs> well, let's, let's segue into Master Tour. This is, uh, this is an app that runs on your computer or your phone. Um, pretty much every touring act uses it. I take it you guys use it. We do not, actually. Oh, I, you stopped because you did on the lot. We did, yeah. We did use it in 2014 for a little bit. And then um, our production coordinator at the time was super passionate about it. I really like Master Tour. I think it's great for real-time information sharing. Um, but when you're internationally traveling a lot and you have 50 people who 
their phones may not work. Sometimes it's just easier to go old school. Um, but I used Master Tour religiously when I was tour managing an act called Maddie and Tay. So I do really love it, and I wish that I could put all my friends on a Master Tour for my yeah, life. Like for social <laughs> gatherings. Yeah. So, so basically what it is is... It's a scheduling app, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. specifically tailored to like the touring world. So it's, right. you map out schedules, uh, every aspect, like 9.15 trucks arrive, 9.30 yes. trucks start unloading, uh, and then it's got links to and information about every venue. Uh, specs, stage specs, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. In you it. can put your set list in there, your guest oh, yeah. list. They started uh, adding a social aspect of it too. Now, you, if you go to a city, you can look at a map and you'll see other touring acts mm-hmm. who have rated restaurants or bars, or whatever, and they'll say totally. this is a cool place to get late night uh, food, or this is the best whiskey place next to mm-hmm. uh, this venue in Boston, and you can see what act they're in and like when they were there. So that's part's pretty cool. So, what do you mean by going old school, though? I, you know. I rem- will never forget. Printing something out? Pr- I have printed day sheets before. It was 2016, March, I believe. And I uh, slid some day sheets under some hotel room doors just because I wasn't sure if anyone was reading my emails. And I didn't want anyone to be able to make an excuse. And I was brand new at the time. And so we had an extra early call time. So it, I remember it being midnight. And I'm like sliding day sheets under doors like, I wish you would all just get international data. But, you know, sometimes you can't ask too much of people. So one of the things that always comes up with Master Tour is uh, everyone that's on it. So every person in the crew and the band can add people to the guest mm. list. But then only the administrators can kind of approve and then decide how many there, there is. So can we talk mm-hmm. a little bit about guest list politics, particularly when you get to like a show in L.A. or New York or like the big cities where everyone knows everyone and also where there's all the industry people? Oh, yeah. I am actually, when I was on Hosier, had a great side hustle going where if we were ever playing in Dublin, I would sell my guest list less, right? So we would we would be really super, you know, like fair about it and say, okay, everyone gets four tickets. Well, I'm American, so I would be like, Sam doesn't know anyone in Dublin today. So I would sell them, you know, like $100, you know. To, you mean to other... Me- to other members on my tour, you know. Yeah, Obviously, I'd be like, hey, Andrew, do you need my guest slots? And he'd be like, no, Sam. And so I'd be like... Crew and band. <laughs> I have four tickets up for grabs. Come to me with your best offers. <laughs> I made a killing. I got a scarf out of it once. <laughs> you traded one for a scarf? I traded, I traded the Guitar Tech's mom a scarf for a ticket to Longitude Festival. So this is so when I asked that question, what it is that in you that they saw, uh, you know, at 21. Hustler. So, yeah, to, to join the Kingdom of yeah, Hustler, baby. This. Absolute <laughs> chancer. Um... Yeah, guestless politics can be really intense, especially when you are in New York or L.A. or a hometown show, you know, um, because people who have been on the guest list for years and years and years feel entitled to stay on the guest list. Yeah. Uh, managers can have tons of guests. I'm very fortunate that on Kings of Leon, we had one person whose whole job was guestless, and she's really great at ticketing and managing that. So, you know, that's a full-on job for a band that size who has been around for that long and has a lot of friends. Yeah, like I remember when we... Where did we play? Uh, did we play in Nashville with them? No, we did. Austin. Austin. Oh, was it Austin? Yeah, where it's a they, raceway, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Where a lot of the band's family came out, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there was like three hundred people backstage, oh, yeah. and you know, having had to 
basically encounter the question everyone gets every band and every crew in every city gets a question hey can i can i come to the show can i get on the guest mm -hmm. list and then there's a limited spots because each ticket that goes onto a guest list is a ticket that's removed from being for sale right. so it's a it's a it's a loss to the promoter and or the band mm. and my favorite kind of text is the vague pre-asking for guest list spot text I'd rather like. Hey man. Hey, what's up? Like, Saw you're going to be just in town. Just ask me for the tickets. <laughs> no, just, the, what's even worse than that is texting you and asking you the price of oh, tickets, yeah. hoping that you'll say, it's "Oh, like, you're on the guest list." Yeah. You know, you know immediately what they're asking is. Uh, totally. Do I have the, to there's something. Mu just ask for something. It's much more refreshing than trying to sneakily like Machiavelli your way into the guest oh, list. Also, I... the C level acquaintance that gets his name on the list and then doesn't show up. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, like it's like I, we have a lot of friends we could have given that to, mm -hmm. or people, or yeah. we could have sold the ticket. And you're like, oh, maybe I'll come, bro. Yeah, I've got I've got a friend, uh, a few friends that um, will do. They'll not talk to me for months, you know, and which is totally fine. And the first thing that they text is, "Hey, I'm coming to the show tonight. Can I get on the guest list?" And I actually I respect and prefer that so much more than any type of roundabout way. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, you you just you want to get on the guest list, and you made it very clear. Right. I do like the direct, you know, don't make this even more awkward for me by wasting my time because I don't want to be, like, really cool and smooth about it. It's like, yes or no, baby. Give me a yes or no question. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've just started taking advantage of that, like, through our management and agent. Like, I got on the, not a guest list, but, like, a free tickets to go see uh, Tears for Fears the other day. Because, mm -hmm. like, everyone does this to me. <laughs> I'm gonna just start doing. I'm like, hey, can you hook me up with tickets yeah, to the yeah, Staples Center? I, and like, they're like, yeah, obviously. And I was I like, asked, oh, shot, uh, you careful. I'm gonna do yeah. this every week. Anderson Pack was sold out at the Palladium, and uh, I asked Corey, and she managed to wangle some tickets, and I, I felt very guilty. I felt, yes, <laughs> I felt, was, my but policy, not guilty enough to turn them. You know, not guilty. Oh, absolutely. Yet. My policy is, if a show is not sold out, I will buy a nosebleed ticket. And if I know someone on the tour, I'll be like, hey, I have a ticket to see your show. I would really like to see you, you know, but I have bought a ticket. No worries. And then nine times out of ten, if you're friends with that person, they'll say, here's a pass. You don't have to sit in your shitty seat that you bought, but you can stand in the pit or, mm, you right. know. I think it's going to be funny when if you start taking into other areas of your life, if you know, know people at restaurants, hey, I, I know you work at uh, Sanso. I'm going to come in. Can I get a free meal? <laughs> I actually just capitalized. I felt like a baller yesterday. I got coffee with a friend of mine who lives in L.A. And I'm not from L.A. I'm never in L.A. This is the first time I've ever been here not for work. And... So my friend Katie's like, hey, let's get a coffee. And I'm like, perfect. We're going to Republic, right? It's a Sunday prime brunch time. <laughs> Guess what? Mama knows two of the staff. <laughs> so I roll up and just sit straight down. And my friend, she comes up and she's like, hey, girl, what do you want? And I'm like, vanilla latte for my friend who's not even here yet. <laughs> and I'll have an Americano four shots. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and sure enough, my friend is, she's like, did you stand in? Line? I'm like, no girl, I didn't stand in that line. Like, did they ever stand in a line for anything I wasn't down for? <laughs> we need to talk off the air about who this is. Cause I've been and stood in the line at Republic oh. and, uh, I hate standing in lines. They got good pastries there. I will say that. Yeah. Um. Fantastic pastries and great waiters. So then we kind of jumped ahead. We went I've, to music. I've Sneakily do that. I don't sneakily do that, but like, you know, like where did we go? Thirsty Crow, the door guy there. I know his name. He never remembers me, but I just say, "Hey, Frank," and then he lets lets us in because was, he doesn't know if he knows me or not. What was really, <laughs> what was really funny though that night is that he was giving 
There was a, a woman and a man, they must have been 65, maybe close to 70, and they didn't have their IDs on him, mm. and he wasn't allowing them in. He says, no, you got to have your IDs on there. He was giving them such a hard time, mm. and we walk up, and Danny says, hi, Frank, and we've never met the guy before. <laughs> There's three other people, and he and he just says, oh, is this your party? Okay, go ahead. Right, like, right mm. in front of them, it was the It was very, it's Amer- there's a, the worst example of that American policy about IDs is you got, like, a 67-year-old couple from France, so you're not letting have a glass of wine, and then you let, you know, four youngish people in no. but he said he specifically said is this your fucking company <laughs> <laughs> so we jumped ahead we kind of did music business before we did music but we'll just let's jump back now to music and since obviously we met you on the Kings of Leon tour we want to talk about what what are your favorite Kings of Leon songs do you listen to those songs anymore you know what my mom is actually the first member of my family and friend group who brought Kingsley onto my attention when I was in high school. My mom really, really liked the Come Around Sundown record, but I really like Because of the Times. On Call is my favorite Kingsley yeah. song. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that I did. I I thought that was a cover because I heard them play it. <laughs> I was like, it has this vaguely sort of familiar sound, like something older. And they're like, no, that's Kingsley on song. Yeah. And so then it became one of my favorite songs. I, you know, I don't sneak out to watch the show very often. That's my prime work time. Um, but if I ever do get to watch, it is going to be wherever on call is in the set. I'm going to like sneak around and I'm going to stand stage left and just be like, oh, this is so cool. I love this bass part. <laughs> yeah, I think um, my some of my favorite songs are the new the new stuff the new albums or the album previous to this one which walls is, was awesome yeah walls i great. really enjoyed that album beautiful love that song we talked about it on when we were on the tour I, everyone thought that should have been a single um and that's what's interesting Be- i think to beautiful uh, war beautiful war that's what i said right the no, one with the beautiful. cool like prison rodeo music video yeah yeah, yeah. oh gosh well, I love um, that. yeah caleb said that he wrote that song the same time that he wrote you somebody in the hospital and he said it just never made the album so like whatever 10 years later it got on Mechanical Bull no shit yeah it's recycling I get it my favorite song uh, well at that that time on the tour there was a part in the set where they I think they did Knocked Up and Pyro in a a row and the visuals were super cool oh man they nail it Uh, yeah that that became kind of the moment for me where I I went from just Knowing their singles and liking them, and then when you tour with a band and watch them every night, we became actual proper fans over the course of that tour. And that moment was like knocked up. It's like a seven or eight minute song, mm-hmm, and they just mm-hmm. keep, it's like chugs along forever. And and uh, they were telling me that they get bored playing it because it's so yeah. long. But you know, for a fan, it's one of the one of my Speaking favorite. Speaking of boredom. And knocked up. Um, our head of Uh-oh. security. What are you telling us? Our head of security, Jamie, is one of my best friends on the road. But every single night, when the band's off site and everyone's loading out, he will be whistling "Knocked Up," <laughs> and he'll be walking around just like whistling. And we have all just gotten to where we'd be like, "Jamie, you've got to stop it!" <laughs> and because it will stick in everyone's head, it is so catchy; it just mm. lingers. I think one of the the greatest things about Kings of Leon, which we learned on the road, and one of the most interesting things is um, they don't play with any click. Any track, it's just four guys plus auxiliary uh, member, um, so five guys playing instruments, and the entire set is uh, with visuals, crazy lighting, 
And all that is very difficult to do without, you know, everyone being on the same page, everyone, everyone getting cues. And they do it all without that. So it adds this uh, spontaneous vibe to the live show, which we watched. We, we were out on the road for two months, and we watched the show almost every night, and it's different every night. And that's a really difficult thing to do. It means you have to be a great musician. You have to have a chemistry between you um, that allows... They did a different song every night, right? Right. Like they would have mm-hmm. the fans would pick song uh, for the city, I believe it yeah, was called. Yeah. The fans so would choose. I loved when they played uh, "Back Down South," one of my favorite yeah. songs. Especially like that. That's the song where the line is, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna call a runner." Yeah. It felt like very inside. Like totally. I, I know what a runner oh, is. I'm in on this. But when they played that in, uh, we were in Birmingham, Alabama, and obviously like deep south yeah crowd reacted to that one. My that parents really came cool to that show. Oh really? I remember Mo coming up to me and saying, "Sam." Who's coming to the show tonight? You actually look nice today. <laughs> and I was like, Wait, my parents. So you're from? I'm not. No, my parents. I'm originally from Mississippi. Oh, okay. Um, I grew up on a farm outside of Memphis, and my parents just really love to skip out on their jobs to come hang out at mine. <laughs> so once a tour, they will make the trek to wherever they feel like going oh, and just right. come hang. You were you're in you say Memphis is obviously in Tennessee, but. Uh, mm-hmm. That where is it that's near there? That's a c- hotel casino place that we Tunica. Play. Tunica. Oh, you been to that casino? There? You guys, funny story about Tunica. When I was like eighteen, nineteen, and not supposed to be in casinos, my grandmother loves to gamble, and my grandmother broke her hip and she was in a wheelchair for a little while. And so to entertain her, we'd take her to the casino. They won't ID you if you're pushing a senior citizen in a wheelchair. So I got like three years head start on gambling with Linda. <laughs> Yes. Hus- always yes. hustling. We yes. opened up yes. for Alice in Chains and played on that circuit. And I got to tell you, the catering we always talk about on Kings yeah. of Leon, imagine that, how amazing it was. But the exact opposite. Casinos are the worst. They just gave us food tickets to the, to the buffet, and it was unreal. Just like mile after mile of fried something. It didn't yeah. matter what it was, whether it was broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, Butter. fried chicken, or... Potatoes. It was all a like creamy white color. Everything yeah. was this whitish, yeah. off-white color. It was there was no variety in that whatsoever. I actually had never eaten a vegetable until you guys made me curry because I'm from that part of the world and you just <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't get me started on curry. We'll be in three-hour <laughs> podcast. Um, since oh, we- that, by the way, if you guys are looking for good curry cooking YouTube videos, Chef Va. Oh yeah, Chef Va is he's the best there. Yeah, on I, uh, put a put a note so we put a video a link up to that because yeah. I watched some of those. You showed me those Chef Va videos. Yeah, and he's number one. He really knows what he's talking about on, on cooking, and it's very descriptive videos. But he is so enthusiastic about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> you know he says stuff like, "My favorite smell is is a." Uh, Chili's garlic and ginger cooking in ghee. There's no better <laughs> smell in the world. <laughs> and then, yeah. then you do it, and, and he'll he's make right. A, he'll kind of go, mmm. <laughs> do you cook when you get home? Oh, like, because you, man. The whole time, you said uh, earlier off the podcast that you, you own a house now. You just bought a house in mm-hmm. 2016, so you've had it for, what, 18 months or so? And yeah. you spent 86 days there. So. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, I own a home in Nashville, and I have not spent much time there because, you know, if I want to pay for the thing, I got to be on the road. And But I, I try to cook. Um, you know, my grandmother was a really great Southern cook, you know, biscuits, carrot cake, fried chicken, the whole thing. But I am really trying to learn how to cook vegetables because I really enjoy eating vegetables, um, but I don't know how to cook them. 
and I am probably the worst egg poacher you will ever meet. That, that, that nobody's like good everyone. at poaching no eggs. Yeah. Like, they're these mysterious Other people. Like five-star hotel breakfast, no yeah. one is good at So that. I try to cook when I'm home. There's a series of vegan cookbooks that I really got into called like Thug Kitchen. Do y'all know anything uh, about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is so funny to read. Like I read it like a novel, but they have some incredible like sweet potato, black bean enchiladas that I thought were amaze. And um, <laughs> amaze. <laughs> <laughs> And, That's corn. <laughs> and so I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I try to cook, but I wouldn't say I'm too good at it. I think when people are in town, they definitely would rather me just take them out to dinner. But I'm working on it. It's funny. We always do this member berry section where we, like, reminisce. But that's pretty much the whole podcast. Miss Cooking? No, well, no, no. Let's do some. Let's do some specific. specific yeah, reminiscing. So the one that I, I don't know if did you get one of those little Drake? Uh, I mean, sorry, Little Wayne Drake T-shirts that we got oh. in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. So we're you on the guys. Kings of Leon tour. Yes. And you want to tell us about that? I mean, I want you to tell about it, and then I want to tell my side of the story. Okay. So the short story is we got there, and uh, the week before, the Little Wayne Drake tour had come through, and their security had confiscated, like, boxes and boxes of uh, fake merchandise mm-hmm, that people mm-hmm. were selling outside. So Ooh. they had yeah, bootleg t-shirts they were just giving away to people because they confiscated them from people so i don't know 30 of the people in the crew that yeah, day were just yeah. wearing <laughs> little wayne drake t-shirts we got some funny pictures little wayne we'll versus drake up. yeah yeah versus yeah. drake that tour was crazy i was recently just talking to someone who had been on that tour and i was like okay the only input i have here are these t-shirts right. and i never got one but i had massive jealousy of everyone who did and i just remember like owen wore his forever and danny like cut hers off into like a trendy tank top and i'm just sitting there like nobody got me a lil wayne versus drake t-shirt well that is, we got about eight of them yeah that's funny because basically all the crew from all three bands and all the band got them and we went out one night to the hard rock um, hotel, the casino in West Palm Beach, and there were eight or nine of us wearing. Uh, I don't know if I was wearing one. I think it might have been the only one not wearing one. Then we went to the casino, and so there's eight or nine of our crew and band wearing those the exact same shirts. They walk into the casino, and as we walk in, I don't know if you've been to Hard Rock uh, Casino, but they they pump the music, the same music throughout the whole casino, and they have TV like towers of TVs. Um, throughout the whole casino and TVs in every room and they they coordinate all the music and uh, sound and Come With Me Now comes on the, the video the music video comes so you're um, all standing there and we're all standing Wayne around in our little Wayne t-shirts <laughs> everyone all together and we're sitting at the bar watching the, ourselves on massive TVs <laughs> the t-shirts were so bad they were, they were horrific it was like they, they went to search <laughs> Lil Wayne print image stick on t-shirt yeah. it was so bad and they added pixelated. some flames weren't there some like really yeah. cheaply yeah. like clip art frame flames yep. <laughs> they were bad i remember we had a whole conspiracy because because i don't know how many i know that some of the kings of leon crew got these shirts but it was mostly us our bus like we kind of <laughs> snagged them all so i think there were eight or ten on our bus and we decided to coordinate with the young the giant guys we said okay on thursday we're all going to lunch in the catering wearing these t-shirts and we're not going to say anything yes. and i remember we did it one day we walked in like 10 of us wearing these Drake versus little wayne shirts and just didn't say didn't acknowledge yes. it i feel like every tour has a t-shirt situation because just recently on kings of leon in the winter arena run all the crew ended up wearing these like Cobra Kai t-shirts and I was like you guys where are you getting these like who do I have to talk to around here and one of our carpenters had just been screen printing Cobra Kai shirts me from Karate Kid 
from Karate Kid. Yeah. Like the massive logo and everything. <laughs> and so by the end of the month, every single member of the crew essentially had one. And we decided we'd always wear them on travel days. So, <laughs> and at the time we were flying a lot. So every other day without fail, we would look like, like a NBA team, except worse, <laughs> all wearing Cobra Kai t-shirts, like grown adults wearing these weird, beautiful, homemade karate kid shirts. <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine in the airport lounge is like, Oh that, no, the karate team's yeah, here. That's, totally. some, that's something I, I actively avoid is groups of people wearing, the same t-shirts I, I will run in the other direction because they're usually it's usually weird families or, yeah or <laughs> weird like bachelorette parties or that anything like that i gotta get out of the this i gotta get out of way totally off subject but just you know when you were saying earlier that one of your carpenters uh on the tour that gives the scope of a, of a king's leon tour or a tour of that side yeah. that you have a job that's dedicated to guest list uh, a carpenter multiple and, uh, are there any other jobs on the tour multiple. that you wouldn't expect or the um, you know the listener wouldn't expect to have on the road you know i was just talking about how i recently spoke at a panel at my former college and someone asked me how do you see touring changing and i think a lot more people who traditionally don't picture themselves working in music are probably going to end up on a tour because there's so many jobs like um electricians right you go to school to be an electrician and you probably don't even consider that you could be touring with a rock band soon um and also i mean we travel with three carpenters and, you know, they do everything. We On the Walls tour, we carried a gorgeous Austrian curtain, which is a big, red, beautiful, like, theater piece, essentially. And, you know, one guy hung the curtain, and one guy moved the curtain, and then, you know, one guy maintains all of our road cases. We have so many road cases, and there's always a broken wheel, or there's always a caster that needs to be replaced. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are just so many jobs you don't even think of. But a lot of people don't even think of caterers, you know, when you guys were out with us, we traveled with, you know, a five-person catering squad. I'd say they worked harder than... The hardest yeah. working, and nine times out of ten, the most fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, caterers get down. The they bus. are yeah, down they... to clown 24-7. Party animals. It's weird. You would not think that the catering crew is, like, the most fucking insane. It's a mobile scene. Including, including, including the band. Down? They're crazier than the show I Party Down. It, it got canceled. It was like two seasons. This show Party Down with this guy, uh, with Adam Scott, and I don't know. It was a, it's a comedy series, but it's about caterers. And it was a weird combination of, you know, everyone became like a weird friend, and they mm, did, mm-hmm. they did, it's called Party Down. So they kind of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, that's the, like you're saying, everything that you have to do has to be thought about ahead of time because there's no, like, oh, I'll just stop off at Home Depot. So you have, right. you have to think of every potential thing that can go wrong. It all has to be done on the move with like two hours before the bus right. is Who rolling. was uh, on that tour? I can't remember his name. He was a, an electrician, cameraman, and he built motorbikes that he would ride across the country. Um, oh, he's from Mexico. Dennis. Mm. Dennis is a really... He was from Mexico? Yeah, he know. lives actually... I believe he lives outside Tulum. Huh. Um, and I only know that because I'm vacationing in Tulum coming up and someone was like, you going to see Dennis? And I recently saw him. He was out with you too. But yeah, same thing. Like this r- wicked, smart, talented person mm-hmm. who, you know, touring with rock bands is only one way he uses his skills. Yeah. On the, or the last podcast, we talked about Magic Mike. Um, yes. And, uh, well, that's what, we, that's what we called him. What's Mohawk. This? Mohawk Mike. We Mikey Mohawk. Mike. But uh, that yeah. was uh, really interesting that blew my mind because what we 
saw of him was... The really hot guy in the Speedo? Yeah. <laughs> Gyrating? <laughs> the hot guy in the tank top. Um, skateboarding. Out like four hours Working a day. out all the time and then around the, wearing the a bow tie? Yeah, he would always do the workouts. And you just kind of got this impression like, oh, he's having the greatest time. He's on tour. He's skateboarding. He's working out. He's a jock. And, and Yeah, he's a jock. And then you find out he's an extreme. He lived his life like the volleyball scene in Top Gun. That's right. You, yeah. Oh, my God. Never wearing a shirt. Yeah. yeah. Nobody minded. Extremely intelligent, goes on to work for SpaceX. Yeah, that was actually his last full tour, I believe. Um, yeah. He's now an electrical engineer at SpaceX. Right, yeah. Yeah, and he was, he, while he, so he would be waking up at 6, doing his workouts, loading in the lights. He wouldn't finish until 1 a.m. I don't know where mm-hmm. he got the energy, because in the, while he was running the programming, the automation on the lights, he had his textbooks out. Yeah. And he was studying for his PhD in, um, I think it was like Fucking aeronautical yeah. science. Aeronautical yeah. engineering or something. Yeah. Like he, well, um, funny thing about that, every off day, you wouldn't really see Mikey. He was always working on school, writing papers, but I would proofread his papers. So I always knew what he was up to because under my door would slide a paper mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would just like mark it up, you know? like So he could manage a space station launch. He just can't spell. You know, we can't all do it all. <laughs> Speaking of shirts off, you reminded me of another member, Barry, which was um, this year we we went on tour, I think it was May, and the first show of the tour was um, Beale Street Music Festival in Memphis, yes. Tennessee. So it was a big festival, a lot of big bands. Um, I guess I'll try to tell the story out of order. So we arrived there on a bus, unloading, doing, our, you know, all the stage work and Mick and everyone is one of the things that they do when they get to especially a festival is you have to find a radio channel that works <laughs> so that uh, you can you know the crew can communicate with each other because we, we carry radios so I think at some point Mick was talking to Mo on the radio and we hear this voice come on and say get the fuck off my channel <laughs> and it's something like I'm imagining you with your shirts off right now so yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's you, Sam Pauli's verse I mean, you guys uh, were on voice. my channel and at first, I was irritated. Kings of Leon was headlining that festival. We were headlining that festival. You guys were on a different stage. And I remember hearing radio interference. And so I listened a bit closer, and I was like, I know that voice. I was like, Mick? I was like, get the fuck off my channel. <laughs> and and Mo was like, what are you doing? And I was like, watching you guys load in with your shirts off. <laughs> and then he was like, where are you? And I was like, creeping. <laughs> and then I came by. <laughs> so yeah. before we move on to the favorite gear of the week, you said you had a New Orleans story that was worth... Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know why we were talking about New Orleans, but I had a close call. You guys know how much we Uber when you're on tour? Yeah. You Uber everywhere. I almost got kicked off Uber, you guys. Off the uh, app, you mean? Oh, me. out of I app. almost got like banned from using Uber and its services worldwide. Huh. <laughs> um, I was in New Orleans for Jazz Fest, and I don't know. Have you guys ever done a Jazz Fest? No. no, no. Okay, it's I not actually jazz, changes, so I didn't feel silly asking. Um, and it's one of those. It's a daytime festival. You know, there's no lights at all because everyone performs in the daytime. And you're done by like 4 p.m. And so I, you know, we played our set. It was hot, hot, hot out. It always is. This was my second Jazz Fest. And I remember going out to like the concessions. My friend Mary was in town. And we like went out and ate like some boudin and some etouffee and just had a great time. And then um, our bus call was at like midnight. And we were off the clock at 6 p.m. And so you have a bunch of roadies who have just worked all day in the sun and have nothing to do. So we went to a pub, and I remember we started off at this sports bar, had a great time, but then Jamie had a security and I um, ended up at this really cool jazz 
jazz bar. And next thing you know, it's time to head back to the hotel. I had been drinking. As I mentioned before, I am very good at it most days. And I, um, I remember that I was like play fighting with someone in the back seat and we pull up out front of the hotel and everyone is sitting outside the lobby because the buses are about to roll up any minute. And we were like making a close call, you know, like that's probably the most scandalous thing I've ever done is like maybe be late to a bus call once. <laughs> I've never actually been late, but like the thrill of not being five minutes early just is crazy. <laughs> and um, so the Uber stops and I swing the door open and everyone goes, oh, shit. And the door has smacked into like a no parking sign. So the whole sign is going like just waving, right? And the entire crew is like, Sam has been drinking. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I got to get out of this. So my friends have exited the Uber. Of course, it's on my account. I had called the Uber. And the driver just rolls the window down. Her name was Cassandra. She's a lovely lady. I hope she's doing great. Um, (laughs) She rolls the window down and she says, was that my car? And she's like an older, sassy, just like Cajun woman, you know? Mm. So, which kind of scares me because Cajun people can get real angry, you know? Um, and I remember there was this Cajun woman in my neighborhood named Miss Tony who made incredible jambalaya but was sassy. And um, uh, Their accents are also... Yes. Like I, 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 accents don't baffle me usually, but I can't... Your accents baffle me. Well, yeah. It, you can understand this, though. <laughs> Cajun accents are very difficult to... Understand. Yes. And so she just looks at me and goes, was that my door? And I say, nope. (laughs) And she says, okay then. Rolls her window up and drives off. And so I'm standing there like, hold up. I'm a horrible liar. (laughs) You know, I tell the truth, like, even when it's not my best interest. And I feel so much guilt if I ever lie. But I just told this woman that I didn't assault her car door. And she believed me and drove off. So I'm like, okay, I got away with it. (laughs) The next day, we drove the bus from New Orleans to Austin. And I remember that, like, a lot of the crew had been in Austin already. And so I needed to pay PDs and per diems, for those of you who don't know. It's money you pay your band and crew for, like, living while on the road. Um, It's cash. It's great. (laughs) And so I remember I sent out an email to everybody saying, PDs in room, blah, 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 you know, between this hour and this hour, come get it. And my friends Turner and Andy are in my room to get their PDs, and I get the email from Uber, you know, and it's like pound sign, pound sign, pound sign. Um, we heard there was a situation last night in New Orleans, and I am automatically thinking, like, I'm going to get out of this, right? Like, what would I do if I were an attorney? <laughs> so, because I might need one. Um, and I'm freaking out, right? Like, before I even open the email, I'm looking at the guys like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. I'm going to be banned from Uber forever. I can never go out again. I can't go anywhere. My wings have been clipped. (laughs) And the email just says, hey, what's your side of the story? We heard there was an incident. And so I write back, you are correct. There was an incident. She pulled up out front of the hotel. You know, as an Uber customer, it's not my responsibility to make sure the car is parked in a safe place where I can exit. So I am not claiming any responsibility for any damage that may have been done to that vehicle. Mm. And for those of you who are outside of America, this is how it's done. Yeah. <laughs> Bam. Everybody's a lawyer here. Justice. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I basically claim that she put me in danger by not parking away from that pole. You know that she's somewhere in New Orleans now, like 
casting a spell, and the next oh, time you go back to the French I'm quarter, doomed. yeah, you're gonna drink a Guinness, and it's gonna you're gonna be like, ah, I am <laughs> so doomed. I can never go back to Nanola. Um, so how long is this guilt now? Is this this is your confession? Your <laughs> I'm about 18 hours into guilt, and and then I get an email back, and they say. Your safety is our priority. You are exactly right. Thank you for being an Uber customer. Well, yeah, I mean that. that see, that is the thing. Crazy. When you're dealing with big companies, yeah, they just run the numbers, and like keeping customers happy right. is better than absolutely. And I am a hundred percent sure she had to get a paint job on that door. They, mm-hmm. She's probably covered by the Uber's insurance. Probably, thing. but you know what? That's not even the worst Uber story I've heard. But I still felt really bad about it, and I I felt like. A monster for a while until my <laughs> friend Alyssa told me that her she got out of an Uber at LAX and the door got taken off by another car. Like she narrowly missed getting hit, but the door went like sliding across. I think we can win the Uber yeah. story so Ooh. far. So you remember Stripes? I do. Yep. He was front of house for us for a good year or two. He, Mick, and Chris, I think, were out drinking in New York and Manhattan, and we were staying in wonderful, beautiful Jersey City. Yeah, absolutely. A- across the river, yeah. and they. Ubered back, but in New York you can the, get an Uber that's a yellow cab also, mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. have that kind of shared thing. So they get out at the gas station near where we're staying, where the bus is parked up. Mick gets out, and the driver starts yelling, "You need to pay me!" And they're like, "Well, it's Uber; it's paid mm-hmm, in the app; mm-hmm. it's all done." And the guy goes, "No, you need to fucking pay me!" And he goes, "You're paid. I don't know what you're talking about." Oh gosh, they were back wrong. And, they were wrong. No, yeah, yeah. In uh, at the end of it, it turned out they were wrong. Right. Yeah. Huh. Back and forth a bit, Mick. It oh. ter- turns out on Uber on Uber taxis you have to pay cash, uh, you yeah. still have to pay cash you can order it through the app yeah but there was some confusion it was just brand yeah, new no, like so no like, one, yeah make no it, they weren't trying to screw the driver right they, just, they just thought they paid uh, they're going back and forth the guy just drives off with stripes still in the oh, car oh boy and locks the doors locks the doors <laughs> oh boy so Mick texts us this is like three in the morning Mick texts us. He just writes, they took stripes. Oh, shit. <laughs> and we're like, oh, fuck. How drunk oh, are these no. assholes at four in the oh. morning coming back from Manhattan? So I write back, what, what do you mean? And he goes, I'm calling the cops. The guy's taken stripes. Kidnapped, so, kidnapped stripes. Yeah, kidnapped stripes. So Where is Liam Neeson when you need him? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so they call the cops. Uh, we run over to the gas station now to figure out what's going on. And by this point... They've managed to call the driver through the app, mm-hmm. and the guy is just yelling at them saying, fuck you, pay me. And they're like, just bring our friend back. We'll pay you. We'll figure this out. Like, no one's trying to screw you out of a, mm. you know, a $30 payment. Right. <laughs> you know, like, this is not millions of dollars right, involved. Right. Just give us mm. our friend back. So, long story short. But well, Mick, when he showed up at the bus, Mick was completely plastered. And then when the cops showed up, it's uh, sober Mick, capable of handling, you know, anything showed up and he was talking to the cops perfectly coherently yeah instantly it was it was very bizarre i think that's a trait that you develop as soon as you get the title of tour manager Mm -hmm. like you can be absolutely gone for but the moment some leadership needs to happen you're like i'm on this you guys don't worry i've not had a drink in years (laughs) (laughs) yeah the cops cops eventually track down the driver uh, who had already was back in Manhattan now at this point, no stripes. Stripes' phone was dead. Oh, He'd gosh. left his credit card at the bar. So, like, this is. <laughs> <laughs> and we called another Uber to go look for stripes because we figured, I don't know, maybe they got in a fight and they left mm. him. So, we, I, me, and uh, Mo, I think, or yeah. Mick maybe, were driving around for an hour in another Uber in Jersey City. Near the Holland Tunnel, if I'm getting the tunnels right, yeah, it's it a like pretty yeah. shitty part of town. 
looking for stripes, just driving up and down streets, looking for a drunk idiot <laughs> wandering the streets. He says, uh, wait, did he eventually, he walked up to the bus, right? No, yeah, we eventually, after an hour, said, like, whatever, there's nothing more we can do. We told the cops about this. We're driving back to the bus now, and we call, keep calling Stripes' his phone. Eventually, he picks up, or you guys pick him, say he's here at the bus. He had walked back like an hour well, yeah, the, from the Holland Tunnel. The whole the part that was left out until we found uh, we had the conversation with Stripes is that he the driver wouldn't slow down. He was like rolling through red lights, you know, because oh, he didn't gosh. want Stripes to get out of the car. Um, and he was threatening to take Stripes to the police station, and Stripes said, yeah, please, please, please take me to <laughs> please. the police station, uh, you know, so we can settle this. He's like, you've kidnapped me. Yeah. Um, and then he, then the driver realized that, and he's like, okay, never mind. So he keeps on driving around. Eventually, Stripes jumped out of the moving vehicle. Oh like ro- When they slowed down to a, a red light, he jumped out and walked back. And he damaged yeah. his foot because he kicked the car as it was pulling off. <laughs> he, yeah. And he, like, kicked it, and he, like, hurt his toe, and he had to walk back. It was, and then he said he that's such a man a, thing a to one-eyed do. One-eyed prostitute. Yeah, you literally, never know with stripes, but he was telling—he was not in a state to be making, he was shaking, elaborating. He was shaking yeah. up. The yeah. guy yeah. was the guy. The yeah, driver sure. Off his phone and was no longer. He got directions phones, from quite literally a a a prostitute, uh, a one-eyed <laughs> prostitute who had, um, who like had her mouth sliced or something like that, like some like. Some like dark David Lynch type bad, stuff, bad yeah. Movie. And we were we were tweeting with Uber saying, uh, uh, "Bring back our uh, friend." No, no, like just let us know. Uh, contact us directly. We need to talk to your emergency customer right. support to try and find our friend. Yeah, like track down this. Car so or... lucky it was Stripes because he's oh man could could handle it. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> If it was right. Mo, we wouldn't we wouldn't have Mo. <laughs> so that's, that's our long extended uh, member berries. Um, we're going to talk about our favorite pieces of gear of the week. Um, Sam, on the road, what is one of your favorite pieces of gear? It can be Ooh. anything. You know, like, we said a stapler, portable printer, rodeo. I mean, rodeo. I have radio. Quite, <laughs> quite the menagerie of things, but my favorite item, which is also a great conversation piece, I have a tape dispenser that is shaped like an otter. <laughs> and it's very useful and very cute and he blends in really well with one of the dressing rooms at Jimmy Fallon so I love to take him everywhere <laughs> didn't Wait, someone take your oh my this, gosh they, they kidnapped your otter tape dispenser they or kidnapped else? my baby wolf I have a baby stuffed wolf that was I bought it as a present for an audio guy who then didn't take it with him when he left the tour and gave it back to me and I was now like single mom of this stuffed wolf. It was a big dramatic saga that I entertained (laughs) myself with. And um, someone stole him. So we were in Europe for seven weeks, I think. And the last 10 days he went missing. And leading up to this, the guys had, they would like, you know, dump out a bottle of Benadryl and then lay him over like he had overdosed. Or (laughs) they would tape him to the wall. Or they would like ram him into a water bottle. (laughs) <laughs> and so it was a lot of vicious attacks on this stuffed wolf um, leading up to the kidnapping. And so then it became a war where, like, an Instagram account showed up. It was called, like, Baby Wolf is Mine. And these videos, these ransom videos started appearing. And it was really incredible. You know, it would be, like, Baby Wolf blindfolded in a shower or 
baby wolf being held hostage in a car. Um, and so I would respond on my Instagram. I would say, you know, I'd put on like Sarah McLaughlin in the background and be like, if you've seen or heard anything about baby wolf, you know, please, you know, I will, I will meet your demands. Please have baby wolf back on my desk. I remember watching this all unfold on your Instagram. It was oh, it, and it was so funny because everyone was invested. I was getting so many Instagram messages and comments like, what's the update on baby wolf? Like, how is baby wolf? And I'm like, you guys, this is a stuffed animal that one of my friends has taken, but everyone is <laughs> so invested i had fans calling me like out on twitter like is baby wolf back (laughs) and i would have to post updates like you know it's been six days since baby wolf went missing you know if you know anything i actually bought a waffle house gift card to give to the captor um (laughs) turned out it was ethan and ethan Ethan luck yeah ethan luck had my baby wolf and um I got him back in... Sounds like a creative type. Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) And I knew it had to be someone on the tour who didn't work that hard. (laughs) You know? Because, like, backline guys, they work for, like, four hours a day. And then they can totally, you know, like, edit videos of stuffed wolves. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this, you started narrowing down your right. culprits based on their and it was free funny. time. And it was funny because each, all the, and it was really good for morale because when you're grinding out a long run and, you know, we were flying a lot and doing gigs all over, everyone was kind of tired, but it was like so great. Everyone was rallied against it. You had crew members who wouldn't normally talk to each other being like, have you seen this shit? <laughs> you know, like people were joining Instagram just to follow it. Um, and you know, everyone would submit photos, like, trying to frame each other. So people would be, like, sending me a photo of, like, Baby Wolf on stage left or, like, Baby Wolf on the drums or, you know. So so it w- I was actually perplexed. I was like, I honestly do not know who has this Baby Wolf. So this also goes to show you how close the – even a size crew of anywhere from 30 to 50, how close that crew is. Why, why is that? I mean, I know that the core crew has been together for a long time. Yes. But um, how do you – how do you develop that? How do you develop that uh, close knitness in a crew? Because it doesn't exist everywhere. And how important is that when you guys are touring? Because obviously, like you said, you've been on the road for a long time. You get you get sick of it and sick of each other as well. Yeah, I don't think there's a recipe for it. There's not like a step by step way to make your crew like each other. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you're, you probably can't even hear your. Her phone is blowing up right now. People actually want to talk to me now. Because um, <laughs> you're famous, you're on this podcast. Ha, I'm on this podcast. Tens of listeners. I have tens and tens of Twitter followers. Um, anywho, I you know I think there has to be. I really like it. You can work really, really hard, but as long as there's some comedic relief or some abstract thing, like if there's a World Series going on and you start a pool, or if there's a Super Bowl and you say, okay, we're going to watch the game on a massive LED wall, you guys come, catering's going to make some chicken wings, you know? You just have to kind of make it fun because everyone is working so hard and everyone's away from their families and the hours are insane. There just has to be that one thing that isn't part of the gig that people can rally around and so the baby wolf saga gave that to us and it was really hilarious because i would go up to like a different department every day and be like team video what do you know like i know that you guys are real technical and you guys can cut video and what is this like which one of you is it and they would be like we honestly don't know but we think the guitar techs had him you know (laughs) you got to keep them pitted against each other for best results (laughs) so our piece of gear is not as fun as a tape otter dispenser an otter tape dispenser, which I uh, figured we'd talk about the Exponential Audio R4 reverb plugin. Just briefly. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's a, it's a thing that makes audio sound like it's reverberating. 
Is that? It, <laughs> this th- is quite. Yeah, this is this is very technical. Reverb. You guys like reverb, right? When someone says hello, and he goes, "Sounds like you're in a church." He goes, "Hello." I get that part. Yep. Yeah. This is a really good one of those. <laughs> yeah, cool. we updated to it, and we're. I'm putting on every channel now. Every everything's going to sound like it's in a, cathe- a an old. Uh, English cathedral. Yeah. Like Can everything I say on the podcast have it? Yeah, we'll sure, put it yeah. on. A, yeah, we, <laughs> in fact, maybe we could do say that. something very like. Everyone, honor. be quiet for a second and give Sam like five seconds. Say something. We're gonna put the R four on it. Okay, for the podcast. Chihuahuas. I just think that'd be a cool word with reverb. <laughs> All right, say, <laughs> it again, say it again, but forcefully. Chihuahuas. Chihuahuas. Right. Yeah. Chihuahuas. <laughs> Now you understand. For the layman listener, there's a whole bunch of presets. That it's a plug-in on your uh, DAW that you're working on. You can choose all sorts of different rooms uh, to emulate a sound. So there'll be presets like a hall, a chamber, a church, a small room, a backyard, and you can change the reflection of that sound within this kind of virtual room to um, make it sound like the, right. the audio is in a, in a it specific is, room. It is algorithmic. It's not convolution. So for those of you who care about that kind of thing, it's an algorithm emulating that stuff as opposed to a convolution reverb. They'll send out a sound in a physical space, and it's called an impulse response, and then they'll measure the, the room, and then they'll apply those measurements to your audio source. And that's one way of doing it, and this is algorithmic. So what do you mean? They, they basically, there are plugins you can buy that have sampled what the reflections sound like in famous, like right, in yeah. Abbey Road studios, so that you can have an approximation, uh, you know, yeah. put your drum kit, make it sound like it was recorded in Abbey Road studios or something like that. And they've gotten pretty damn good at that, where you, it's, you know, very yeah. close. Yeah, they're different kinds of sound. These are like the, the R4s are is a, meant to be a lexicon-like, you know, uh, synthetic soundings, intentionally slightly synthetic sounding, but it's a nice sound. Yeah. All and right. That's so. that for gear. So we do a segment every week called What's It Like to Be in a Band with Your Brothers because that's the only question we ever get asked in interviews. But we'll ask you, what's it like touring with a band of brothers and a cousin? Um, You know, I don't travel with the band. And so I think... You know, that's probably something a lot of people don't think about is that you have different moving parts who travel together. And so I always travel with the crew, but the band has a whole squad that travels with them. So I don't know much about their day to day. You know, before I see them at the venue, I really have no idea, you know. But I think for me, it means more family at the same time, you know, right. because you're not just, there's not just, um, you know, one person's family member in Milwaukee, there's four, you know, right. which is a lot of fun. Like, I really, really love so many of the family members I've got to meet. They are, they are great chefs. Like, there's some jambalaya and some Cajun food that comes out of New Orleans because, you know, somebody's mom makes it. And, I mean, it's, it's always a party. You know, it's always, it's times four. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, they're they're obviously on a whole different schedule, but they they you know they spend what probably four to six hours at the venue, and I, I guess one of the ways that you can see the relationship, even if you if you're not hanging out with them at breakfast, you know, uh, is on, is on stage and the way that they play oh. together because they know each other so well and they've had so many years of being together, you know, in so many different situations, and you you always just know your family a little better. Yeah. I think, were, the, I think the Kings of the Moon are a good example uh, and of 
where the the sum of the parts is whatever that phrase is <laughs> the sum of the parts is greater than the individual no the oh. sum of the parts whatever it's the whole is greater than the sum of the <laughs> that's parts that's what i'm trying yeah. to say <laughs> um where each one of them is clearly talented but together they're more talented than they would be individually or in other bands you know mm-hmm. oh extremely extremely i think they have something really special going just because i mean their talahina sky movie i saw after I said yes to going on tour with them, but before I actually went, and it gives you so much insight, you know. Right. Um, I really love that movie, and I, I actually have been meaning to go back and watch it after, you know, kind of being in their world. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know, with your family, you can always kind of resolve certain things quicker, but then other things you have to be more patient with. Yeah, yeah, stupid shit takes weeks to right, resolve, whereas right. important stuff... Like, I have a brother, and if I, you know, tell him that I think something he does is incredibly stupid, it can be the biggest wound, you know? But, like, there can be a massive issue that just goes away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a really good way of summing it up. It's the little shit that takes oh, forever yeah. to figure mm-hmm. out. Like, um, So you went on tour with them after the... like. The, there's the Kings of Leon I think a lot of people think of which is like the crazy partying rock band arguing brothers like bordering on Oasis thing and then when we met them super chill family man sort of thing yeah those are the only like versions. they're still rock stars they somehow, are absolute rock stars but like now they're like drinking wine and yeah. I want to wear all of Matthew's clothes he has the best wardrobe um I never knew the wild and crazy Kings of Leon you know um and People say stories about it or whatever, and I'm sure, you know, it was probably like a college phase because, you know, there. I think everyone has that phase in life where, you know, you're figuring things out and you're testing the limits, but I never knew anything about that with them. I joined them well after the kids and the stability and, yeah. you know, the wine over tequila. <laughs> All well, right, so it's not a mixed up. drink, by the way, did you say? It can be if you want it to be. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, so on this last segment, you said something off air, um, that we said, oh, let's talk about that on the podcast, which was, you said, don't tell people your personal shit because they will never forget it. And you will. Oh, totally. Um, I, you know, have being off tour gives you the opportunity to catch up with people you haven't seen in a while. And when you're in your life, things feel so big you know, like things feel so massive in that moment that I can be complaining about, you know, my housemate pissed me off and this and this and this and this. But two days later, I'll never even remember that I was mad at her about that. But, um, and I don't get mad at her often. That's just a random example. I thought of she's actually great. But um, I, you know, but I'll remember if someone tells me my boyfriend is such dick. I'll remember that your boyfriend's a dick forever. But, like, the next time I see you, you'll probably think he's great. Yeah. You know, I just think you have to really kind of be reminded of perspective on the things you share and how important is it really. Because if this is the one thing you choose to tell me, that's the one thing I'm going to remember. Whereas for you, it may just be a sentence you say during your day. Yeah, I guess it's being careful so that you don't create this impression. Like you're saying, like, you're now probably think your your girlfriend's boyfriend is a dick when she just meant, like... Oh, he was an asshole that day. Right. Now you have an entire totally. perception of him set up in your brain. Absolutely. 
I know. think, well, that, you know, that's kind of, if you want to get deep on this subject, the, it brings up the question of truth. You know, what, what is truth? If mm. you tell somebody one piece of the puzzle, which in itself may be true, mm-hmm. but as a representation of the whole picture, it gives you a skewed view, then it's not actually true. And it, it, it kind of reveals the subjective nature of truth. There we go with the word subjective again. Oh, absolutely. Um, $5, Jesse. But it, what I, I, uh, I'd like to think about other languages... Like Spanish, for instance, if you say I am, there's soy or estoy, you know, there's permanent and temporary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas in English, you pretty much say I am angry or, you know, I am a man. You know, Mm -hmm. one thing is defining you in a more long-term permanent sense and one thing is defining a um, temporary state. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's a lacking thing in the language that if you're telling somebody about something temporary... Uh, and you only see them so so often, then they're going to perhaps confuse it for a temp- a, a permanent um, right. thing. Like 12 angry men, they're not always angry. You know? <laughs> right, right. No, I just, I and I heard that, um, and I actually, that phrase first came to me, like, because my friend was talking about how she was trying to get better at sharing, you know, like letting people into her life. And she goes, you know, I remember my mom told me, you know, don't share because you won't forget. You won't remember, but everyone else will never forget. And I was like, whoa, that blew my mind. Because I'm pretty much an open book, you know, for better or worse. And to have that reverse perspective, I, I started thinking about the things that I knew about people, you know. Yeah. And were those even consistent things or just right. the days I encountered them? Sure. Well, especially what you were saying when you get off the road, it's with people you haven't seen for a while so you are seeing now just a little sliver of their life whereas i feel like on the road now with certain of our crew members that we've been with forever there is much more openness because you do get to see a much fuller picture of everything it's not like oh i just heard one day so and so was angry or upset Mm -hmm. about something you get to see the full spectrum and then you have a a wider picture of that person but yeah like you come home and meet some friend you haven't seen in six months and like oh this totally. one thing. You do it when you meet a person. You know, when you meet a person for the first time, you, you obviously have your f- initial judgments of them. And the most predictable thing is that that person is going to prove to display some negative quality which you saw in them. Because everybody's got negative qualities. You give them long enough, they'll come out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my favorite thing is the opposite of that, is when you meet a person, you initially make a negative judgment. And then they prove, they, then you learn Totally. And they improve, right? And that's quite a rare thing, and that's, like, very satisfying. And it just shows you that your initial judgments have value, but obviously not total value. I'm kind of in the business of meeting new people. Every single day, the person who I have to work with, I may have met for the first time. And every single year, you sign on to a tour, and you may know someone on that tour. You may know no one on that tour. And you, like, I am actually really fascinated with the ways in which we know people. Because on tour, you can be so incredibly close but also still only know one compartment of someone's life. You know, like I had been on tour with a guy for an entire year before I knew that he had a kid, right? And he was just a friend, you know, but it had just never come up because, you know, we're in a work setting and even though you eat every meal with these people and you work 12-hour days with these people and you go and sleep on the same bus as these people, it's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you were dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so there's a, sometimes there's a feeling of... Um, wanting to keep a little bit of something just for yourself, Absolutely. you know, because if you do have to see these people every day in a close quarter, uh, and everyone kind of knows everything about everybody, you know, then 
then you don't have a sense of uh, you know your personal stuff because it's out in the open. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think at a certain point when you've been together long enough, there's there's no escaping it. Uh, like for instance, the two guys that just walked through the living room, <laughs> Mo and Garen, have, you know, we've lived on a bus for months and months and months. Probably you add it all up, years together. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you see them. When they're sick, when they're well, when they're happy, when they're laughing or they are sad about something or they lose a grandparent or something like that, you know, and at a certain point, it's very hard to avoid yourself and avoid themselves. And I really like I had someone um, who's known me for three, four years now Um, on the last tour. He said to me one day, he was like, you know, you're really not a morning person. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, I'm great at mornings. And he goes, no, no, no. Like, you're pretty grouchy in the mornings. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, I had never heard that about myself before. And I, but I kind of stepped back and I started realizing, like, maybe he's right. It's funny. You learn this about people that you – this is the type of thing you only know about your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband oh or wife. Oh, my gosh. And I feel like I know, have 50 like, boyfriends. I know, <laughs> I know Garen, like, he needs his coffee before he gets going in the day. And I know Moe's ready to go first thing. Like, it's just oh, all these people. I was at – I was out to dinner with a civilian the other night. And we both ordered um, some types of salads, right? And on tour, you – everyone plays a weird type of role that is actually quite intimate if you take it out of context, right? Like, I have someone on tour who, he doesn't like mushrooms or feta. So anytime we go out, I don't like pickles. He'll eat the pickles and the olives. I'll eat the mushrooms and the feta. And that, so I'm sitting there with this girl who I haven't seen in a while, and I'm, like, (laughs) scooting these things to the side, and she's like, why did you even order them? And I said, because I normally don't have to worry about it. Like, he normally eats something. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that's what's so interesting about being on the road for long periods of time is you are around, especially if you get close, you're around people that are a reflection of stuff that you're not aware of of yourself. And, you know, I think it's an interesting concept. We always try to bring this back to something deep, man. But oh, the idea so that deep. this one situation or this one scenario that you have a conversation with someone and they tell you something about their lives and you have to question whether that's permanent or not or Mm -hmm. if it was just you know a fleeting moment in their lives i think that also is totally applicable to yourself when you when you feel angry or you feel uh upset or you feel you're in a certain state or a certain mood that's fleeting too so it's this constant the only thing that is constant is this impermanence and uh to see that in yourself and also not to get so identified with uh this fleeting moment of being Oh, there's something Jesse was saying that is important to think about in the context of the English language is how the language of that affects massively the way that people come across. You meet different cultures and they do seem to have a different sense of how their moods define them. Like I, I feel like right now everyone feels particularly defined by their mood of the hour. Like There's a bit of a feeling right now of just like, anger mm-hmm. that's like going around the country and a lot of it for obviously for good reason mm-hmm. but then there's also just a lot of people saying like oh i am angry this is me i right. am all anger mm-hmm. right i think there's a good exercise that you can do um push-ups <laughs> yeah <laughs> push-ups and pull-ups and also uh you know and i none of us does this enough it's, I, I don't do it enough but i i recognize the value of it when when you feel something coming up and you'll say it's anger um Instead of thinking in your head, 
verbally, you know, sometimes you verbalize thoughts in your head, even if it's, you don't say it out loud. You say, I'm angry right now. If you check the, the, you flip the language and say, there is some anger arising in me right now, then you are not the anger. The anger is its own thing that's coming up in you. And that immediately puts distance between you and the anger. And you are now a little bit free from it. It's not you. You don't have to identify. It's not, I, I am not angry. There's some anger in me. Therefore, I can step away from it. My favorite thing to watch happen is when you are like, you're in some sort of, like, sort of mood or whatever, negative, angry, moody, and then a piece of information enters your life that actually gives you joy. But you you have to, you find yourself holding on to your previous mood. Yeah, and you, you start realizing, like, yeah, you're like, well, well, I mean, I want to feel justified in whatever I was just feeling, but I also kind of want to enjoy this next thing that's cool. And you can't, you're in between the two of them and you're like holding on to wanting to feel justified about whatever you were feeling negative 100%. about. A hundred percent. I rarely get angry. Mm. You know, I, I'm nine times out of 10, a very jolly person, but the one time the flip is the switch is flipped, I will hold on to that because it's like, all right, I've decided that y'all have pissed me off and I'm going to stand by <laughs> that. Like I, you are never going to make this right, right you yeah. know, until, you know, someone brings me an apologetic, you know, like cookie or, <laughs> you know, like, like until there's a surrender, I'm going to stand by that. Even mm. if I want to laugh at your joke, right? Yeah. you know, like, <laughs> I I don't know. I just I think the thing about touring especially is you have to take emotions and feelings and everything just so you have to process them so quickly and let them go so fast or you will poison yourself. Mm. Um because unlike normal jobs, if I worked at an office 9 to 5 and my boss told me that I should be a Walmart greeter and that I was the most disappointing person he had ever met, I could go home to my living room and I could bitch about him to my dog and I could yeah. sob at an HBO movie and then I could just let it go and go to work the next day. If that happens to you on tour, you have to sleep on a bus with that person. Wait, is this a specific example a... that you're pulling from? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we you said know. this exact thing last week. We were talking with Mo or Garen. Like, it's the fact that you have to sleep with these people. Yeah. In like three feet away from them that it completely changes the dynamic of what is basically it's an ordinary you got a boss you got co-workers yeah it's not that strange yeah it's the fact that you go home with them right (laughs) it's like not only have you hurt my soul like i have to go back to the bus and fix my makeup and then come back to sit in this office with you, you know, like, and it's, you know, and I think just touring is really great for emotional strength and the fact that you have to identify, was that even about me or was I just the person they intercepted about something else? And you just have to let shit go so fast or you'll rot. Yeah. I think it teaches you to interact with people in a little bit more, um, open way. You can, you can leave the possibility open, like you said, that it's not just about you, that they've right. uh, come across something on a, in, a, in the day that made them feel a certain way. We've all had a shit day. Oh, my God. <laughs> you oh, kind of so see horrible. that in big cities in, in a certain respect when you're forced to interact with people. A lot of, you know, like the stereotype that like New Yorkers are rude or mean or whatever. It's always seemed weird to me because I actually find that because they're forced to interact with people so much, there's actually a bit more of a normalcy in interaction with them where sometimes you go to like a small town and that's where it's actually weird or people are mean or vindictive Mm. because you don't have the same kind of 
situation where you're they emotionalize all sorts of interactions that shouldn't be like emotional eastern europe i know obviously there's a language barrier that limits communication you know within a little realm but even taking that into consideration like uh poland and russia and and the ukraine and stuff like that there was there was not unnecessary considering you know like Americans always apo- even if they walk by you and they're three feet from you, they'll apologize. They'll say, "Excuse me." Yeah, excuse me, and they'll they'll mm-hmm. they'll make they'll actually make emotional something which is entirely unemotional. And I found like and maybe that has its benefits. Maybe that opens up some you know maybe it makes things passionate or something like that. And in Eastern Europe, it was the exact opposite. It was everything was matter of fact. But it was you also know. that was also weird. We were on a bus. Uh, going from the terminal to the plane on the way to the to Ukraine, and we were stuck on the bus. And everyone's wearing winter coats, and it got really hot. And it was about thirty minutes, we were stuck there waiting. I don't know why the bus had some issue with it one or another. Everyone was silent. No one was complaining to each other. And like, if you, have you ever been on a bus for, to a terminal in America? Like, if it stops for thirty seconds, people are like looking at their watch, mm-hmm. going, "The fuck is going on here, American <laughs> Airlines? Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Delta!" And they get go nuts. <laughs> this was thirty minutes. We were starting to complain because yeah. we're Americans or Westerners. Yeah. Everyone else was just like, "Well, at least we're not outside freezing to death." I, I guess. think it is <laughs> the it is the rel- the the overall relative hardship that is you're contrasting your experience with yeah yeah which i thought you know it's not a desirable thing you you want to be able to complain about everything oh, i love complaining you know, yeah. <laughs> i've kind of gotten better at not being a complainer you know because when you're the person that people complain to you kind of get bored with complaints right you know yeah. Yeah. so i have really kind of like I feel less complaining inside me after touring because I'm just like, no one cares. <laughs> like no one can change this nine times out of 10, you know, like the no just, one cares thing. That's the real truth. Nobody, totally. I mean, I, some people care and that's, and you'll notice that you, that'll leave an impression on you when somebody cares about your problems. That'll fucking, that'll leave a huge impression and that'll make you realize, Oh, the rest of the time, nobody gives a shit. I lived in New York City for three months when I was in college, and one of the most beautiful moments of my life was I had had an atrocious day, and I'll never forget, I um, walked from Times Square all the way back to Brooklyn Heights, sobbing, full-on weeping as I walked, and no one stopped, no one asked me what was wrong, no one gave a shit about me, and I was so into it, because I'm from the <laughs> South, I'm from Mississippi, everyone's gonna know your business, everyone's gonna ask you what's wrong, everyone's gonna wanna A, just know that shit just to know, mm. but B, they're gonna wanna make you feel better, and there was <laughs> such a beauty in, no, no one gives a shit about what has happened to me, but also no one gives a shit if I ever feel better. And that was so freeing. Well, it's also like you were saying in your job, everyone comes to complain to you. From your perspective, you can because you're not so emotionally attached to it. You can see the triviality and what they're complaining about, and it gives you some perspective on your own thing. When you're like, do I really have the right to complain about this or that, or feel a certain way about this or that? Because if if I was objective about it, if someone else was judging my complaint. It seemed ridiculous. So you get you get a lot of experience of that when people. If are I walked into to my own office, would I tell myself to shut the fuck up? <laughs> right. You know, like I was vegan for a little bit <laughs> towards the end of the last tour, and I would find myself mentally complaining to myself, like, "I can't believe we had to eat stuffed peppers again." <laughs> and then I'm like, "Okay, well, the only resolve here is that." 
I'm going to go back to the production coordinator again, and I'm going to say, hey, girlfriend, I know you're doing the best you can. We had stuffed peppers again. I know you're not vegan, but can you just, like, you know, you want me to send you some recipes or something? You know? Um, like, the, nine times out of ten, the only thing that can be done is that you try to mention it, realize that nothing may ever happen, and then just remind yourself that everyone's doing the best they can, and maybe that just wasn't a priority that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not about you. Yeah. No one gives a fuck about my vegan diet. Let's end it right there. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Sam, for coming out and talking with us. We always love talking to you, and we always look forward to seeing that we're going to bump into you on the on the road, and oh, hopefully yeah. we'll see you next year on the road sometime soon. I uh, think this this is evidence that, you know, we talk about the Kings of the Land tour a lot on the podcast and outside of the podcast that Young and the Giant guys talk about all the time, too. You know, it was a two-, three-month period of our lives, but we all made a lot of friends. The family family atmosphere extended beyond us four brothers and the kings of leon brothers and cousin and it went through the whole 50 to 100 person touring crew and it shows now that we're still kind of friends and so oh yeah thank you for coming out here yeah thanks for having me we talk about that too every support act that comes by has to kind of live up to that you know <laughs> so good luck <laughs> thanks guys all right so make sure you guys subscribe on apple google Stitcher, all that stuff, and check out kingus.com slash podcast uh, to see all the pics and stuff that we're talking about today. We'll throw that all up there. See you guys. Bye.